0: Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Elie Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, as we talk to you today in the week that Donald Trump's going to be sworn into office, I want to focus on the topics of one of your recent pieces, a piece that was entitled What is Trumpism? And I think maybe one thing we should do here before we start trying to find the the bigger patterns in Trump's political views is to acknowledge how secondary a factor those views actually are amongst his critics. In fact, you say early in this piece that the common denominator amongst most of the groups that have expressed a distaste for Trump is – and I'm quoting you here – Trump the man, not Trump the avatar of some political movement that they detest.
1: Um, Explain what you mean by that. Well, I think all of us have learned it's quite striking um, that when you enunciate or list or give examples of Trump's positions um, enforcing immigration law or simplifying the tax code or rebuilding the military – then we don't have a problem. But when we put Trump the man into the equation and then we think of tweets, we think of his orange skin, his yellow hair, his outrageous um, comments, and then everything gets muddled. So uh, I think there's two issues here, uh, especially with the never Trumpers on the conservative side. If they just look at the cabinet and look what he's actually done, whether it's suggesting there should be changes in NATO, although quite in a hyperactive fashion – um, or taking a call from the Taiwanese president. They're for that, but they just can't stomach the messenger. Right, right. So in this piece that you've
0: written, you've done kind of an exegesis here on the Trump worldview, and, and you have found some common themes. So let me just sort of take these one at a time. And I'll start with this one, which may surprise some of our listeners. You identify one of the important values of Trumpism as tradition. Explain that.
1: Well, I think when he gets on that podium and you see Merry Christmas plastered there during the holidays, you can see what he was trying to get at. And then he talks about patriotism. He talks about small-town America. He talks about making America a great dash again. And I think he's sort of a moral deist in the sense that he has this image of a – it's a wonderful, live Frank Capra world that is now updated for everybody of all different races and genders and all that stuff uh, even though he can't um, he aspires that for everybody even though he can't meet those standards himself because his own life has been pretty postmodern. So, but I do think he's a traditional reactionary moralist he thinks it has value for the, the greater commonwealth
0: Victor, at the risk of being a little facile with history here in, in the piece you wrote in the section on tradition You used the phrase a return to normalcy. And so our listeners who know their American political history will recognize that as a phrase that first entered the zeitgeist with Warren Harding in the the 1920 presidential election. And Harding, who won, of course, he was campaigning in the wake of eight years of Woodrow Wilson's presidency, which was this era of sort of breakneck progressive change. I wonder if you see – A parallel there to Barack Obama who presided over eight years in which you had a really dramatic pace of change in terms of social norms and and social norms in many cases sort of handed down through the political system. Did the Trump message perhaps resonate in a way it wouldn't have otherwise because tradition was something that Barack Obama seemed to give pretty short shrift?
1: Yeah, I think it did. I mean on almost every topic – that was a tradition of American culture and society. Obama just either did or tried to overturn it, and I'm thinking of happy holidays, not Merry Christmas, gay marriage rather than traditional marriage, uh, the apology tour, the uh, Cairo speech, the failure to even to uh, even articulate radical Islam. It's a multicultural, celebrate diversity and em- embrace diversity. So he was trying to throw all sorts of curveballs all at once, and I think people just got overwhelmed. And then on abroad, uh, it was he was very much like Woodrow Wilson. He he gave people sermons all the time, moral sermonizing, pontifications, just the way that Wilson was very popular, say, when he got to um, Versailles in 1919 to settle the aftermath of World War I. And when he left six months later before the... Uh, the conference was over, he was roundly despised. And he was despised because he was considered weak and sermonizing at the same time. So I think that the world and America, they, they're they just tired of this arc of history speechifying. And he lectures Putin about being a class cut up. He lectures uh, the Israelis. He lectures everybody. But then when it comes time to be forceful, people get, get the impression, you know, he lectures because he doesn't want to make a decision or he's afraid to follow up on a deadline, red line, step over line. So they had contempt for him. And I think Trump walked into that and just said, you know what? We're not going to give speeches anymore. We're just going to keep quiet and carry a big stick. We're going to be punitive and react, reactive, but we're going to mean business. And that was a very appealing message after eight years of Obama. Now, the second theme of Trumpism that you cite here is probably
0: the one that's been most widely identified, which is this concept of pitting populism against elitism. Uh, But, Victor, how do we square the circle here? Donald Trump is an Ivy League-educated billionaire who lives in midtown Manhattan and whose biggest recent success prior to getting into politics was in the entertainment industry as the host of The Celebrity Apprentice. If someone just gave you the resume – and told you that you were looking at the the CV of the next great tribune of the people. This wouldn't compute. So so why has it worked?
1: Because I think elitism is a state of mind as well as material circumstances. Obama didn't grow up nearly as uh, prosperously as did Trump, but Obama embraced the Ivy League culture, um, the uh, progressive mindset, um, the politically correct, euphemisms the race class gender uh, agenda and trump had that queen's accent garish clothes sort of messy personal life but he actually did seem when he talked to people that he was more interested in the people who uh, actually built his hotels than did finance them even though he, he knows they're important so he had a affinity whether it was contrived or not i don't know but he had an affinity for working class people that they saw in a way that uh, i just obama didn't i couldn't understand whatever you think of trump he wouldn't have given a deplorable or irredeemable speech as did hillary clinton or he wouldn't have given a clinger speech uh as barack obama or he wouldn't have told middle america or the small businessman you didn't build that he just wouldn't have done it he would have done other things but he would not have done
0: that and the next theme that you identify in the piece is national greatness, and I think most politicians would probably identify with something that they might classify as national greatness, but what's really illuminating is what the phrase actually means to them. How how would you define it in Trump's case?
1: Well, I think he would say that decline, decline is not fated. It's a state of mind, and the United States, by any barometer, economic, military, political stability, uh is the strongest nation in the world, and we, and we have to act like it. So we don't really uh, worry about whether the Chinese don't like us if we talk to the Taiwanese president. We don't really worry if the Palestinians are angry um, if we're going to put our embassy in Jerusalem. We don't really worry if Merkel doesn't like us saying the EU's got problems or the NATO secretary general's mad because we say it's obsolete. So his attitude is we're a great power, and people will respect us when we lead, and they have contempt for us when we don't. Uh, I think throughout history, it's, you get special contempt for a power who has enormous military resources and yet talks and does not back it up. So I think he'll be a punitive Jacksonian. He, will, um, he won't say too much, but if he does say he's going to do something, there's, it's likely that he'll do it.
0: Now, the next
1: section on this list is
0: headlined simply enough, making stuff, and and you mean here sort of an emphasis on the value of labor that involves physical production. So let me ask you the question, Victor, that it's circulating in all these conversations. Uh, is that quixotic? As, as you well know, there are a lot of economists and people who think about labor markets who say, look, the future is technology and services, and these labor-intensive jobs are just not coming back. Is Trump right to resist that counsel?
1: Yeah, I think he is because I think he has a more holistic approach. When he has these terms of endearment, we love our miners, we love our steel workers, we love our farmers. Turn on the pumps, let's get farmers water. And so whether you're a steelmaker, a construction worker, or a tiler, or a carpenter, Trump is trying to say that we've deluded ourselves and to think that we can all be techies or we can all be paper people or electronic geeks you can't do that because we still live in a physical world we all have kitchens we all have bathrooms we all have cars we live in a material world and he's i think he's taking the step taking it a step further and he's saying thinking that i don't and i don't hope i'm not putting words in his mouth but the way he talks if you collate it i don't accept he would say the pajama boy world of josh ernest and barack obama i just don't that's what he would say and i think that physical uh actual building things even if he doesn't get a hammer in his hands but he's involved in that process and that's good for people that that you have to be well-rounded there's a physical as well as a mental and part of our malaise we have right now especially under Obama we privilege these young people with nasal voices that live in the you know the big cities and we forgot the people in between that were more pragmatic and practical And Trump is saying, you know, I trust the judgment of people who have muscular and cerebral responsibilities. I don't trust the judgment of academics. And notice in his cabinet, uh, he really hasn't drawn on very many, if any, academics. Sometimes I think to his uh, disadvantage, but the think tanks and the, the university campuses are conspicuously missing in his appointments so far. You touched on
0: this a moment ago a little bit. I want you to tease it out a little bit more. How about foreign policy? I mean we've we've talked about this at some length on the show before. It does seem that throughout Trump's pretty short political career, every attempt that has been made to place him within the framework of one of the more conventional foreign policy ideologies has been basically a fool's errand. But is there a through line there? Is there a consistent view of the world that you can
1: deduce? Yeah, I think I can. It's not isolationist and it's not neocon nation building. It's Jacksonian, don't tread on me uh, engagement, but uh, engagement in in the eyes or or the mind of a businessman that's always on a cost-benefit analysis. How much do we put in and what do we get out of it? And I don't think there's a lot of... I'm not saying that he wouldn't help in disaster relief or famine relief, but I don't think he's really interested in remaking societies in the mirror image of the United States, he would say, you know what, that may be the best way to solve the Middle East, promote consensual government that gave people freedom and aspirations to find secure lives and prosperity, but that's not what I'm going to do because it's, it's impossible. They're responsible for the societies they make. I'm just going to, every once in a while, go in there and bomb bad guys and then leave. We've done this before, and we felt that it wasn't necessarily helpful And that's why George Bush said, you know, I'm just not going to go bomb Saddam or get him out of Kuwait. I'm going to solve the problem once and for all. But I think we're back again in that constant circle, 360. We're back to if they pop their head up, it's whack-a-mole. Hit them down and don't get engaged. And I think we discussed earlier, it's like mowing the lawn. The grass grows up; you mow it. You don't have an existential crisis that the grass is alive and growing and makes you do this every week. You just accept it. It's the price of stability.
0: So I'll close here today with the last thing on your list in the piece, which is money, and and we know that Trump seems to have an outlook in which wealth is is a marker of merit beyond just sort of business success in and of itself is, is it clear is there a policy cognate to that do we know what that might mean about him as as a president
1: well i think he he adjudicates success or failure in terms of profitable or on you see that in his picks he's very impressed with people who right made it in the business world that t- took a set of skills that academics or intellectuals don't have that's what he thinks. He may be right, and then he feels that programs should be assessed. Uh, if you ask him about an infrastructure program, he would probably say, well, what's the bottom line? If we get better highways or better rails, do we get more efficient businesses, do we get more money, does it pay for itself? So I think he would say, if California wants federal funds, I want the I-5 and the 99 fixed first, and that will bring immediate profitability or and I don't see any profitability in high-speed rail, so I'm not going to subsidize it. So I think that's how he's going to assess. He's not going to be ideological in the sense of global warming says we can't have you know fossil fuel plants. We have to have solar or wind. He would say, well, solar and wind don't pay for themselves. They have to be subsidized. They're not a profitable. Someday they might, but we're not there yet. So let's go to natural gas and fracking. So I think there's a pragmatism there that's based on the bottom line. All right. A lot here that we'll be talking about for the next four years,
0: Victor. That's all the time that we have for this week's podcast. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist podcast. And in the meantime, you can visit hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon for Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution. I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution.